Hi, welcome back to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Okay, welcome to part two of our coverage of the Civil War. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you might want to go and take a peek at that before you start listening to this one. This, we get into the conclusion, aftermath, and reconstruction following the Civil War. Today's podcast was brought to you in part by the team at Keen Insights Internet Services. That's K-E-E-N-I-N-S-I-T-E-S. They spell it that way on purpose. They're punny like that. If you know any business owners looking to compete online with advertising or need a new website, contact our friends at keeninsights.com and be sure to mention U.S. History Repeated. Now, as always, we have our resident history expert, Jeanne Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. When the Civil War begins, it was a war to preserve the Union. It was not, at the outset of the war, a war to end slavery. That would not happen until 1863 with the Emancipation Proclamation, which we will talk more about. Now, there were many battles during the Civil War. It would be impossible to discuss all of them. Battles were fought in the Southeast, in the Deep South, like Vicksburg, and in the West, in battles like Shiloh. Civil War battles typically had one name in the North and another name in the South. The first major battle was the first Battle of Bull Run, or Manassas, as it was known in the Confederacy. It was at this battle that Confederate General Thomas Jackson earns the nickname Stonewall Jackson. It was a victory for the Confederates. Stonewall Jackson would later die in the Battle of Chancellorsville in 1863 after being struck by friendly fire. The Union finally started to gain some ground after the Second Battle of Bull Run and at the Battle of Antietam, which became the bloodiest day of the Civil War up to that point. Union General McClellan had General Lee's battle planned, which, oddly enough, was found wrapped in three cigars in a nearby field. His unwillingness to go after Lee and to move more quickly angered President Lincoln, which, by the way, was not easy to do. By all accounts, Lincoln was a man who had an abundance of patience. Lincoln removed him from command. Lincoln lacked a military general who had the necessary get-up-and-go until General Ulysses S. Grant, who was put in charge of Union forces in 1864. Lincoln's request for volunteers provided a steady supply of volunteers for the Union, but, you know, as casualties continued to climb, a conscription or a draft became necessary. The 1863 Act required men between the ages of 20 and 45 to serve in the military. Now, there were some loopholes one could use to avoid service. You know, men with wealth could avoid the draft by purchasing an exemption for $300 or by getting a substitute to go and to fight in their place. These policies are why the Civil War is often referred to as a rich man's war, but a poor man's fight. The tide of the war changed with Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. He needed a solid Union victory before issuing it. Antietam provided that for him. 
The Emancipation Proclamation was issued in September of 1862. The act gave Southern Confederate states in rebellion 100 days to rejoin the Union. If they didn't, as of January 1st, 1863, their slaves would be freed. Now, from the Southern perspective, it was an outrageous claim that had no legal bearing. But as the Union Army liberated areas from Confederate control, more and more people would be freed. The proclamation, it's important to note, did not free enslaved people in the territories or in border states, only states that were in open rebellion. If Confederate states did not return to the Union, the enslaved people of those states would be freed as of January 1st, 1863. With that proclamation, the war was now a moral one in addition to a political one. The Union would be preserved and slavery would be abolished. This did a number of things. One that is often not discussed enough was that it made it impossible for Britain to recognize the Confederacy once that proclamation was issued. The Emancipation Proclamation also allowed for black men to serve in the military. At the outset of the war, men of color were banned from serving in the military. In 1863, black men enlisted in the military and up until 1864 were paid less than white soldiers. Black men served in what was called U.S. Colored Troops or USCT for short. They served in segregated units which were commanded by white officers. In addition to at first being paid less, Black soldiers faced discrimination and far more severe punishments if they were captured by Confederate forces. While at first hesitant to allow freedmen and runaway slaves or contraband, as they were called at the time, to serve for fear that it would anger the border states, the need for men to fight made it necessary. Many black troops fought with distinction and many received the Medal of Honor. Prior to the Emancipation Proclamation taking effect, the Union took additional steps to rid the country of slavery. The Union outlawed slavery in the territories in 1862, which of course reversed that Dred Scott decision. Slavery was outlawed in Washington, D.C., and owners were paid $300 for each slave. It's important for me to mention that when General Grant and his family went to go and to have him fight in you know, the Civil War and lead the army, his wife brought slaves with her. And we will talk more about this in our upcoming podcast on Ulysses S. Grant and his life and his presidency. The Civil War is often referred to as the first modern war. High casualties, we're seeing changes in, in medicine. You know, the Battle of Gettysburg was the bloodiest battle of the Civil War. It is also maybe the most famous of all Civil War battles. Emboldened by victories in both Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, General Lee decided to invade the North. Over the course of three days in July of 1863, there were over 50,000 
combined casualties. It became the bloodiest day of the war, and it kept that title for the remainder of the war. That battle was a turning point. Coupled with General Grant's victory at Vicksburg, the South was dealt a fatal blow. The Battle of Gettysburg was made famous by the Gettysburg Address a few months later in November of 1863 by President Lincoln at the dedication of the National Cemetery at Gettysburg. And we talked quite a bit about that speech in our podcast on you know Lincoln's life and his presidency. That brief speech became one of the most important speeches in American history. The Civil War saw over 600,000 casualties. The majority of the deaths were caused more by disease than by actual battle wounds. You know, medical knowledge is still very much a work in progress at this time in history. Bloodletting, for example, was still, you know, a common practice. The knowledge of the necessity of having sanitary conditions still is not there. Lack of a proper diet, unsanitary conditions, unclean drinking water, you know, medical tools being used for treatment were not sterilized. All of this created a perfect storm for the rise of diseases throughout the camps. You know, we're talking diseases like typhoid, dysentery, scarlet fever, measles. All of these things contributed to the high death toll. The National Civil War Museum of Medicine has a wide variety of resources and primary source documents. Some of my favorite are letters from Clara Barton requesting the creation of a missing soldier's office or those of her testimony on the conditions of Andersonville Prison. Clara Barton is often referred to as the angel of the battlefield. You know, there was no hospital system in the United States. Nursing was not considered women's work. And Clara Barton started gathering supplies. She offered to help, but the U.S. Army turned her down. You know, undeterred, she followed the army to Antietam. And after that battle, she starts treating the wounded in a nearby barn and Believe me, they were very happy to have her supplies. And she continues to do this throughout the war. After the Civil War ended, Clara Barton continued her work for the brave men who fought in the Civil War. You know, that missing soldier's office was housed in the boarding house she lived in in Washington, D.C. after the war ended. Knowing how she had tended to the sick and to the wounded families that were desperate to learn of the fate of their son, or in some cases, sons, sent her letters. She received and read thousands. You know, these letters led her on a quest to find out the fate and the burial places of thousands of soldiers. Today, the office, which was found by sheer dumb luck um, before that building was demolished, is now today a museum. And their website also has links to these wonderful resources. And after visiting the most notorious Confederate military prison, Andersonville, which we talked about in part one, she worked to have the mass graves of Union soldiers properly identified and marked. And she, of course, goes on to help establish the American Red Cross and served as its first president. Like Clara Barton, 
Many women throughout the North volunteered to help the war effort, whether it was knitting socks for soldiers, doing laundry or mending uniforms, collecting the necessary medical supplies or, you know, accruing money for the war effort, cooking for soldiers at camps or the thousands who volunteered to nurse the sick and wounded soldiers on the battlefield, women were very much involved. Dorothea Dix, who we talked about in a previous podcast, she, of course, championed the improvements for the treatment of individuals with mental illness. She was a nurse during the Civil War. Not very well liked, but she was a nurse during the Civil War, as was famous author Louisa May Alcott, right? The author of Little Women. So many women simply wanted to help the men who like their husbands, fathers, brothers, and sons had gone off to war. Some women even went as far as to disguise themselves as men and fought in the war. Off of the battlefields, many women had to tend to their farms and did work that was typically man's work. Women of color also volunteered to support the U.S. color troops or the USCT. One of those women was Harriet Tubman. The Civil War is often referred to as the first modern war. There had been many advances in weaponry by the time the Civil War broke out. New, more accurate rifles replaced muskets. We have ironclad warships that were being used to blockade the Confederacy. You know, torpedoes being used by the Confederacy to rid themselves of the Union blockade. Yet, while these technological advances have taken place, the ways in which battles were fought had pretty much, you know, stayed the same. Men are still wearing brightly colored uniforms. You've got flag bearers, drummers are drumming and pipers are piping, and they're marching towards opposing armies in an open field. Some battles saw more than 20,000 soldiers killed and thousands more wounded. A quick internet search of Civil War medical supplies would turn the strongest of stomachs. Images of the saws used to amputate limbs that had been practically shredded by those new and advanced weapons. You know, a quick shot of whiskey, some morphine if you're lucky, you would be held down and they would start sawing. Mind you, it was most likely still dirty from the last limb that was cut off. The table's covered in blood from somebody else. The doctor's hands are filthy. Recipe for disaster, right? And towards the end of the war, we do see some of those conditions improving. They begin to implement a triage system that is still used today on the battlefield. It was also a modern war in terms of people being able to know about it as the war was unfolding. You know, unlike in previous wars, which had to wait for letters to arrive either on horseback or ship, with inventions like the telegraph, Morse code, railroad lines, people throughout the country learned of the news of the battles in newspapers. Photography, while still very much in its infancy, allowed for the documentation of the war. Images of soldiers, of the camps, even Lincoln's visits to meet with the troops or a general, and of course the images of the battlefield, which showed the horrors of war, all aided in keeping Americans informed. It also 
created an additional headache for the government because it, you know, those images heavily influenced public opinion of the war. In fact, you know, many of those glass plates with images of Civil War soldiers and the aftermaths of battles ended up being sold after the war and used to build greenhouses. And, you know, sadly, over time, the sun fading those images of war-torn men and women. The Civil War continued to rage on through 1864 and 1865. General William Tecumseh Sherman, famous for his campaign to capture Atlanta and his march to the sea, you know, General Sherman inflicted such devastation to to Georgia and captured the city. He went on to capture the Carolinas and did far worse to the Carolinas than had been done in Georgia and set out to meet up with Grant's army in Virginia. In early April, the Union army had captured Richmond the Confederate capital, and President Jefferson Davis fled the city. He was eventually captured, you know, in May. The end of the Civil War is typically marked at being April 9th, 1865, the day that General Robert E. Lee surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia. You know, Union soldiers went in search of a suitable place for the meeting between the two generals, and a man offered his you know, the parlor in his home. In General Grant's autobiography, written just before his death, Ulysses S. Grant writes the following, and this is a direct quote from his autobiography. What General Lee's feelings were, I do not know. As he was a man of much dignity, with an impassable face, it was impossible to say whether he felt inwardly glad that the end had finally come or felt sad over the result, and was too manly to show it. Whatever his feelings, they were entirely concealed from my observation. But my own feelings, which had been quite jubilant on the receipt of his letter, were sad and depressed. I felt like anything rather than rejoicing at the downfall of a foe who had fought so long and valiantly, and had suffered so much for a cause though that cause was, I believe, one of the worst for which a people ever fought, and one for which there was the least excuse. I do not question, however, the sincerity of the great mass of those who were opposed to us. The surrender terms that Grant gives to Lee were generous. The men would be pardoned, given Union rations, They were allowed to keep their horses, which could be used for the upcoming harvest, as well as their sidearms. A vicious war ended by a gracious meeting of two men who just days earlier had led armies against each other. Now, it's important to keep in mind that this was just one army of the Confederacy. Many other armies still had to surrender. Many more battles would still continue to be fought in the Civil War. Confederate President Jefferson Davis demanded that the remaining generals continued to fight, but it was only a matter of time before they too surrendered with similar terms to that of Lee, and Jefferson Davis was captured and charged with treason. President Abraham Lincoln, who sought reconciliation between the North and the South, had no plans to punish the South. What may have happened after the Civil War had he not been, you know, assassinated, 
will never be known. The country was now in the hands of Andrew Johnson, a Southern Democrat who had remained loyal to the Union during the Civil War, a man who would not be trusted by either the radical Republicans who controlled the legislative branch and by former Confederates who saw him as a traitor to the South, a man who was chosen to be on the ticket as an olive branch of sorts to the South, a sign that Abraham Lincoln wished to work with the South. Lincoln was gone, and so too was his plan for Reconstruction. Now, what was the fate of Robert E. Lee? So Robert E. Lee's home in Arlington, Virginia, which was the family home of his wife, a woman by the name of Mariana Custis Lee, the great-granddaughter of Martha Washington and step-great-granddaughter of George Washington, was occupied by Union soldiers throughout the duration of the Civil War. Its location and vast grounds made it an easy choice for a national cemetery. The property had been seized by the federal government during the war due to the inability of Mariana Lee's inability to pay a property tax in person. And so in January of 1864, The federal government purchased Arlington House, as it was called then, and in 1882, the Supreme Court ruled that the property had been illegally confiscated and paid restitution to the family. After the war, Robert E. Lee served as the president of Washington College in Lexington, Virginia. Lee had the name recognition to bring in sizable donations into the university. He also helped to expand its course offerings. Robert E. Lee remained in Virginia until his death, although, of course, never returning to the family home, Arlington House, that became Arlington National Cemetery. And after his death in 1870, the college was renamed Washington and Lee College. Robert E. Lee remains really one of the most polarizing figures in American history. His military career overshadowed by his choice to side with the Confederacy. As per President Johnson's mandate that former Confederate officials had to formally request a pardon, Lee submitted his amnesty oath, but it went missing for 150 years. He didn't have his citizenship restored, nor was he pardoned like many other former Confederate officials. He was posthumously restored in 1975, over 100 years after his death. Okay, so now what happens to the president and vice president of the Confederacy? So Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens was also arrested and charged with treason. He was pardoned by Andrew Johnson and was elected to represent Georgia in the House of Representatives and was governor of Georgia up until his death. Now, Confederate President Jefferson Davis. He was captured in Georgia in May of 1865. He was charged with treason and he spent two years in prison. His trial for treason was postponed due to President Johnson's impeachment. Davis wanted a trial. The federal government was fearful of such a trial. What if a jury failed to convict him? That would legitimize secession. 
1868, President Andrew Johnson pardoned all former Confederate officials, and a trial was no longer needed. Davis's citizenship was another story. That had to be personally requested, and one had to sign an amnesty oath. Jefferson Davis refused. He even went as far as saying that if he had to do it all over again, he would do the same thing. Unlike Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis never sought reconciliation or forgiveness. He died in 1889. In 1978, his citizenship was posthumously restored. And President Jimmy Carter at the time called it the final act of reconciliation of the war. After her husband's death, Verena Davis moved to the North. A chance meeting with Mrs. Grant would lead to an unlikely and long-lasting friendship. The two often spent summers together and were even pictured praying together at Grant's tomb in New York City. And they remained friends until Julia Grant's death. So... The Civil War is now over. And like Humpty Dumpty, you know, the country, it's in pieces. How do you put it back together? Could it ever be whole? Who should be punished? How should they be punished? What do we do with the millions of newly freed men, women, and children? Where will they live? How will they support themselves? They have been forced to be uneducated For generations, should they vote? How will former Confederate states enter the Union again? How do we ensure that this never happens again? The United States had to be rebuilt politically, socially, economically. How do you heal the wounds that tore this country apart? Over 600,000 men had died. Where do you begin? And at what point do you say, we have completed the task we set out to do? After all, when you say you have done enough, it alludes to the fact that there is yet more to be done, but enough has been done to get by, right? So as we turn the page to reconstruction, keep in mind all that had to be done. Think about all that led up to it. And where we are now, consider what happens when you just do enough. Wow, thanks, Jean. It sounds like there's a lot of work to be done to unify the country during the Reconstruction era. Come and listen to see what happens next. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parler. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.